with Johnny Fern's family retreat. We have been talking about um, ways that we can go outside ourselves and touch lives of people who need to have their lives touched. And it's really good. As a church, we are backing and supporting this ministry. It's a long-term ministry. We've been going on for a long time, a ministry for which I have tremendous, tremendous respect, Johnny Fern. And uh, so we want to invite you to begin to pray about your role in this. Uh, as a church, we're going to send a bunch of people, and we are going to uh, volunteer, and we're going to go to camp, and we're going to love families and help them and support them and encourage them. Um, the Baldwin family has been doing this for the last uh, several years, and so I asked Ed if he would come and share with us a little bit about what this uh, camp is all about and how it works and how we can get involved. So this is Ed Baldwin, Sid Wilder. <laughs> on her whole family. And so that when we go and share the love of Jesus with these families, and we spend a whole week with a single family, five new clients with a single family, every SCM will have a single family that they will, that they will be with for the whole week. Everything they do, they do with, with the family. And so we have a chance to share the love that God has given us. And it is just an amazing, life-changing effect, not just on that family, but on us. It's a big deal. It is a really big deal. And you might say, well, that'd be great. We can go, go and do this for one week and it's good. You know what? These people pop up. We were down at the market down here visiting one one day, and we saw one of our one of the campers was there. They're all out there. So here's the deal. When Doug keeps talking about reaching the community, these people are out there in our community. Not in Murrieta. They're out in our community here. And it's an opportunity service, and Doug was talking about this, it's not just that we we need short term like missionaries, but we also need to have eyes and ears out in the community to see other families out in the community with families with disabilities that may benefit from Johnny Fern. That's another possibility. So be praying about it. It's going to be July 10th through 14th is the actual camp. We're showing up on July 9th at the Sunday And it, the cost is $450. And like Pastor Doug said, 
don't worry about the money. But so here's the deal. If we can get our application in by 17th of March, then we save $50 on each application. Because early bird uh, registration, because the check is so new, last year it was unfair, it was like half the normal number of, of, of SPMs, so half the number of families. We don't want that to happen to us. We really don't want that to happen to us. But I'll tell you, it would be just a special blessing to help people from getting closed up alongside us and serving these families. That, uh, you know, God's going to do some amazing things. And it's not just going to be one week. It'll change your life. It'll change the way you think about your problems. And you see a family like this. I just thought you guys were, like, not listening. Um, every year you hear about people that are heading to Africa, people are heading to South America. We're sending people all over the world to try to reach people and, and make an impact for Christ wherever they go. Every year we work together as a church family to raise the resources, to raise the prayer support, to raise all of that kind of stuff. And you'll be hearing more about others who are heading off to other continents and, and doing all that this summer. But here's the thing. This is in Murrieta. You can go on a five-day mission trip and not have to get a passport, not have to get on a plane, and not have to raise $5,000 to do it. We will help you raise the funds. It's $400, bucks, 450 whatever it ends up being, in order for you to go. The church is committed to helping raise the funds so that everybody who wants to go can go. And if you're wondering, who is it for? Is it for teenagers? Is it for young adults? Is it for senior citizens? The answer is yes. If you can find a way to get those five days off, it's for you. And you go, what? I don't have any experience with this. I don't know how to do this. It's okay. If you have the love of Jesus in your heart, you can transform lives. All you got to do is go love people. So it's a tremendous opportunity. I want to send a large group of Grace Fellowship people to Marietta this summer and just make an impact and change the world that way. So something for you to be praying about. If you're interested in it, just mark on your Connect card, uh, J and F, that's for Johnny and Friends, or a camp or something like that. We'll know what it is. We'll get in contact with you. If you're interested in learning more about it, um, Ed and Vicki will be more than happy to answer any questions that you have, but, but I just want to really encourage you to get involved, okay? Um, this morning, we're going to continue in our series called Putting Down the Gavel, Loving Like Jesus. Last week, uh, you may remember, Jesus went out of his way to go to Samaria so he could bring some living water to some Samaritans. And you may remember that Samaritans are people in the time of the New Testament who are universally despised by Jews. Basically, all Jews hate all Samaritans. That's the story. And so these are people who 
who hate an entire group of people who, who have hated them for generations. And when you see this kind of deep-seated prejudice, you think, how does this happen? How do people get to where they just hate somebody because they're a different race, a different culture, a different language group, uh, or something like that? Well, oftentimes it happens generationally, and that was certainly true for the Jews. Generation after generation after generation after generation, parents had taught their children that Samaritans were less than, that Samaritans were people who were not worthy of human respect, that Samaritans were people that you stayed away from, you don't touch them, and if you do touch them, you better go wash up right away because these people are the filthy people. They're the scum of the earth. They are the other guys, and we don't go near the other guys. They were seen as enemies. You ever known anybody who, who despised a whole group of people? It's called prejudice. It's called prejudice. It's something that nice people don't admit to having. And all of us have it to some degree or another. All of us deal with it. And by the way, prejudice is making a major resurgence in our culture. And I don't have to tell you that. You live in this culture, you watch the news, you know what is happening. Since the 60s, I have not seen America so divided on so many fronts as we see America divided today. Racial divides are worse than they have been in my lifetime. Uh, political divides are, are the worst I've ever seen them. Um, there, there's a huge generation gap where, where young people and older people really don't understand each other, or run in the same circles, or even live the same kind of lives as one another anymore. There's a lot of people who have some deep-seated prejudice. There was, a, there was a guy in our church for many years, um, and, and he was a World War II veteran. And he fought for the United States in World War II, and as a result, he hated Japanese people. Just hated Japanese people. He had all of these experiences in the war, all of these scars that he carried around as a result of those experiences, and he just hated Japanese people. And like a lot of people in his generation, uh, Asian was all the same, right? And it didn't matter if you were Korean or Chinese or Thai or Filipino or Japanese. They all sort of fit into the same group. And he admitted to me many times, Pastor, I just can't stand these people. And I know it's wrong, and I, I wish I could, but you don't understand what I went through in the war, and I just hate these people. No matter how hard he tried, he couldn't get past the hatred and the prejudice. He used to drive into our parking lot of our church when our church was located in Roland Heights, which had become a predominantly Asian community. And he would be mad by the time he arrived for church on Sunday morning because just seeing those people. Last week we saw Jesus loving these despised people called Samaritans. That was last week. But it sets the stage nicely for what we need to talk about this week because, because this week we're going to see it in a little bit of a different light. But let's start with this question. And don't answer it out loud, you get in trouble. But how do you feel about your neighbors? How do you feel about your neighbors? I think we should be allowed to interview the new neighbors before we buy a house, don't you think? Would that be helpful? <laughs> that would save a lot of trouble. I've had some great neighbors, and I've had some terrible neighbors. You probably have, too. 
when my wife and I and our family moved into the house that we live in now, we're, the house was in escrow, and, um, and we met these neighbors. Well, the people that were selling us the house and moving away had lived there since the house had been built. And the other people who had lived there since the house had been built lived right next door, and they had been best friends. They had raised their families together. Their kids grew up together. They did everything together. They, they were kind of neighbors who just walk in and out of one another's house, grab something out of their refrigerator, and go home. You know, that kind of deal. And they were just super, super close until something happened, and I don't even know what it is that happened. But something happened, and they had an argument, and an argument turned into a fight, and a fight turned into bitterness, and pretty soon they weren't speaking to each other except to yell. And that was around the time that these people decided to sell their house. And we bought the house. And in this house, in the backyard, there was this beautiful three-level deck that was basically half the backyard. It was amazing, beautiful for entertaining and all that kind of stuff. They had built the deck some time ago, back when they used to be friends with their neighbors. But after they ceased being friends, the neighbors had insider knowledge. They knew that they had built the deck without the proper permits. They went down to City Hall and filed a complaint. And right after we moved in, they made us tear down the deck. And then they continued to do things where, you know, they would, they would not come and talk to us. They would just like go to the city and file a complaint. Hey, you left your trash cans out too late in the day. And we'd get a note from the city. <laughs> Wonderful neighbors, really. You know, and we're like bringing them pumpkin bread and saying a happy new year and all this kind of stuff, and they don't want anything to do with us because the association was so strong for them, they decided they were going to hate anybody who lived in that house. And, and those people have since moved. After, I, it was shortly after we poisoned their pets. I don't know. <laughs> that was a joke, pet lovers. That was a joke. When I was a kid, we, uh, in the early 70s, middle of the hippie movement, we lived in this upscale, very nice Orange County neighborhood, big homes. And, uh, and when there was this big five-bedroom house a little ways down from ours, and basically it was uh, inhabited by a hippie commune. And uh, we didn't think anything of it, and, and one year at Halloween, we went trick-or-treating, and we came home, and the parents had to inspect the candy, and they saw this candy, this homemade candy that we got from the hippie house, and they noticed there was uh, needle holes in it, and they t called the police and turned it in. It was laced with LSD. They were dropping acid in the children's candy. You think those parents had a good November 1st? I'm thinking that was a little crazy. But uh, the, the people, the police went, arrested a bunch of them, and they, people found out it was us that turned them in, and the next year was hell for our family. Basically, they were vandalizing our house. They were trying to kill our pets. They were, they were doing all kinds of terrible stuff. They took a five-gallon bucket of red paint and poured it all over my mom's new car. Um, it was that kind of thing. And, and so my point is this. There are some unlovely neighbors out there, right? <laughs> and you probably have stories to tell that are maybe worse than mine. Jesus had a ton to say about neighbors. I mean, a surprising amount to say. One day somebody asked Jesus to narrow down the teaching of the whole Old Testament law and to say, what's the most important commandment? And of course, Jesus said, love God, and the second is like it, love your neighbor. And that seems simple enough. I mean, God is the source of all good things. He should be easy enough for us to love. 
And our neighbors, those are the people in our community, they're the people we do life with. They should be fairly easy for us to love. But one day, one of the religious leaders pressed Jesus on this issue, and, and he wanted him to explain himself. So I want you to take your Bibles and open to the book of Luke. Go to the New Testament, you're going to go to the third book, and go to Luke chapter 10. And in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, we're going to pick up this story as a lawyer begins to question Jesus about the law. Now, when you see the term lawyer here, we're not talking about somebody who, who you know, sues people in civil court or who defends criminals. We're talking about a person who is uh, well-versed in the Mosaic law, in the law of the Old Testament, okay? So one of these Old Testament scholars comes to Jesus and he says, hey, um, I want you to explain yourself a little bit more. Look what it says, verse 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is it that's written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and, the and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? That's a $64,000 question. If we're going to be told that we have to love our neighbor, we better define who he's talking about. Then he says, love your neighbor. Just who does God really expect me to love? And really, it's a timely question these days in our culture because, as I said before, people are divided and people are angry. It's hard to turn on the TV news without seeing a demonstration of some sort. In all the major cities, people are marching in the streets about various things. One day you have a demonstration in favor of the new president. The next day you have a demonstration against him. One day you have a, favor, uh, a demonstration by pro-life people. The next day you have a demonstration by pro-choice people. And it goes on and on and on. And there's people with picket signs standing on both sides of the street yelling at each other like perhaps never before in our nation's history. The political unrest is insane. We've never had such a polarizing president Everybody has a strong opinion about the president. There's a whole bunch of people who are so disgusted with our president, they can't even believe it. And there's an equal number of people who are so excited about our president and the direction he th they think he's going to take the country that they can't get over it. There's racial tension like we haven't seen in decades. Everyone seems to be in some kind of camp or another, and the camps basically just lob missiles into the other camps and we fire upon one another and we try to tear one another apart in the media. And, and speaking of media, you all know if you want conservative news, you turn to one channel. If you want liberal news, you turn to another channel. And if you want actual news, you're out of luck. Right? And there are these people in these other camps and we've got to ask ourselves, does he mean we're supposed to love those people? Are we supposed to love the people in the other camps? What about, what about refugees? And what about people of different faiths? And what about people who despise everything we stand for as Christians? Certainly, we're not expected to love those people, are we? Jesus had already addressed this question in the Sermon on the Mount, but honestly, I think that most people heard him and thought they must have heard him wrong. Go, go to, leave your finger in Luke 10, and then just go over to Matthew chapter 5 real quick. And let's pick up the Sermon on the Mount. And, and by the way, if you want some great reading that will challenge the way you think about everything, just read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. 
the Sermon on the Mount, greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus challenges everything we consider to be a normal way of thinking and says, you know, God is so different than you would expect him to be. But we're going to pick it up right in the middle in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. This is Jesus speaking now. And he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a hard teaching, amen? That is a hard teaching. And it was teaching like that, frankly, that cost Jesus a lot of potential followers during his ministry. You see this again and again, you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and there's all these people gathered to hear this sermon where he challenges the way they think about everything, and then afterwards it says, and the people went away because the teaching was so hard. And Jesus was always thinning out the crowds by saying things that they didn't really want to hear. It's a hard teaching. Now here we are sometime later when we go back to Luke chapter 10, and he's being asked to explain himself, and so he did what he so often did. He tells a story. Pick it up in verse 30. We're back in Luke 10. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robber's hands, fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. You've heard this story before, haven't you? It's the story of the good Samaritan. Now you know why I was reminding you about these Samaritans and the way they think about Samaritans. A story about a good Samaritan was a story none of them had ever heard before. And we have to be careful because almost everybody in this room has heard this story. We know who the bad guys are and we know who the good guy is. But I want you to just try to put yourself in their, in their shoes and hear it for the first time through Jewish first century eyes and ears. And perceive this story as it's coming to you. And Jesus begins telling them this story. This guy is obviously in bad shape. He's obviously in need of help. The scripture says he's half dead. And you would think that somebody would rush to his aid, but it's amazing how easy it is to look the other way when we see somebody who needs help. Isn't it? I've done it. You've probably done it. We've probably all done it more times than we'd like to admit. 
And in this case, it seems fairly reasonable because this was a potentially dangerous situation. If you study the history and the geography of that time, when he's talking about a, a road between Jerusalem and Jericho, he's not talking about Old Testament Jericho, which fell during the time of Joshua. He's talking about a new city that is rebuilt in a different place called Jericho. And between the New Testament Jericho and Jerusalem, there's basically a road, and it goes through a valley. And so if you have to go through this valley, a rather tight valley, then um, it would be a common place where people would get robbed. It would be a common place where people would get mugged. Everyone knew about this road that he was talking about. It would be like saying he went into this really bad neighborhood at night and he was walking, okay? And he gets jumped and he gets mugged and he gets left on the side of the road for dead. And so it seems like a pretty dangerous situation. The, you know, the bad guys might still be around, and not only that, but it was not uncommon in a place like this for people to set an ambush. They would set some kind of a trap. It would be really easy to have somebody act like they're hurt. You stop to help them. People come and jump you, right? It's a pretty dangerous situation. A person could get hurt. Maybe it's best not to get involved. And so nobody got involved. Specifically, there are two people in Jesus' story who made it a point not to help. A priest and a Levite. Now, remember, put yourself in their shoes. Jesus is telling the story. There's this guy who's been hurt. He's on the side of the road. He's near death. And along comes a priest. And everybody goes, yay! A priest, a good guy. He's going to come and help him. And then he says, but the priest saw him and went to the other side of the road and avoided him walking on the other side of the road and just got past him. And the people listening go, what? A priest would do that? And then he says, but along came a Levite. A Levite is another type of priest. And, and, and you hear Levite and you go, yay! But then the Levite also crosses to the other side of the road and walks past so as not to have to deal with him. And then as you're listening, you're thinking, what's going to happen to this poor man on the side of the road? And Jesus said, but then there was a third person who came by, a Samaritan. Boo! A Samaritan. I wonder what he's going to do. He's probably going to take whatever's left of the guy. He's probably going to kill the guy. He, he, he could do any sort of terrible thing. Not a Samaritan. And then Jesus explains that it was a Samaritan who actually helped him tells the rest of the story. These priests that went by, they were the religious elite. They're the most respected religious people in that society. They're the ones who insisted on every detail of the law being carried out. Their job was to represent God to people. How'd they do in Jesus' story? They both went around. They both went out of their way to avoid the man. They were content to let him suffer and maybe die. They had places to go. They had people to see. They were important people. And they certainly didn't want to get their beautiful white robes soiled with blood. And so they crossed the street and pretended not to notice. And when the Samaritan came, he spent all of his money and promised to spend more. He took care of the man and made sure that his needs were met. Jesus' listeners would have been shocked by this story. They must have been so surprised when the Samaritan turned out to be the hero. He got involved. 
The others didn't. He made sacrifices. The others refused to. He helped, even though it was costly and dangerous to him. The others would have nothing to do with it. And so Jesus asked the obvious question. Go back to verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And of course, the obvious answer is the Samaritan, right? But it's so interesting. It just, I, I think it's interesting. Verse 37, and he said, the one who showed mercy toward him, he didn't even call him a Samaritan. He just couldn't bring himself to say that a Samaritan was a good guy. So deep was his prejudice. And then Jesus said, in essence, go and act like a Samaritan. <laughs> now, now, the passage doesn't say so, but I can only imagine that the people who were listening to this must have looked at each other, shaken their heads, shrugged their shoulders, and walked away confused. Jesus will do that to you, won't he? He is so different than anybody else you have ever known. He seems to see the world through a completely separate set of eyes than the rest of us do. While the rest of us say, look out for number one, Jesus says, being selfish is actually a bad thing. Somehow he seems to think that laying down your lives for others is a good thing. There are a lot of words you could use to describe Jesus, but from a human perspective, one of the most accurate things you could say about Jesus is this. Jesus is weird. He's just, he's just completely different. He's the king of kings, and he humbles himself. He's the Lord of life, and he came to die. He alone has the right to judge human hearts, but he would rather dispense mercy. You don't know anybody quite like that. He's an exceptional guy. If you met a guy like that, I bet you would follow him. And if we could be more like him, I bet more people would follow us to him. And he tells this shocking story to make them stand up and take notice. He wants them to be blown away, to be shaken out of their slumber, so to speak. And we're supposed to realize by the end of the story that everyone is our neighbor. And it's always the heart of God to love people no matter who they are, where they come from, or what their story is. By the way, this injured guy in Jesus' story, was he a Jew or a Samaritan? It doesn't say. You know why Jesus didn't say? Because it doesn't matter. Does it matter? He's a human being made in the image of God. Jesus is trying to make a point here. It's not that the Samaritan helped him because he was a Samaritan. He, we're not told what his story was. We're just told who wouldn't help him and who would. If this story tells us anything, it's that love goes beyond nice sentiment. And, and I'm all for sentiment, guys. Uh, uh, Valentine's Day is two days away, gentlemen. Two days, just a little heads up. It's a little too late to order something on Amazon. And I don't, I don't suggest auto parts again this year either, guys. So, <laughs> um, You know, it's, it's, it's chocolate, it's flowers, right? Um, and if you're thinking about it, I prefer chocolates to flowers, just so you know. 
But he's teaching us that love goes beyond that kind of sentiment. It's not just about the warm feelings. It's not just about romance or even brotherly love. It goes way beyond that. Real biblical love is about meeting needs. It's about rolling up your sleeves and getting your hands dirty and, if necessary, bloody in order to help people who are hurting. It's about taking risks. It's about leaving our comfort zones on behalf of hurting people whoever they are, wherever they are, and whenever we encounter them. Now, I'm going to do something today that I very rarely do. I'm going to, I'm going to speak from the pulpit in my official capacity as your pastor about an issue that is a major political hot button right now. And, and if you've been around here any length of time, you know that I never tell you who to vote for, you know that I never tell you how to vote in the measures. I never do any of that kind of stuff. But there are times when hot political topics happen to also be moral imperatives, biblical issues that we have to address, not because we're Americans, but because we're Christians. Sometimes as Christians, we have to stand up and speak the truth in love, even though it may offend some people. So let me just go out on a limb, take a chance, and tell you the truth. So far, almost 12 million people, half the national population of Syria, has been displaced as a result of the civil war and terrorism that has taken place in that country. You know that because you've been reading about it, you've been hearing about it, everybody's arguing about it. Nearly 5 million people have fled the country got up, took the clothes on their backs, took their children by the hand, and left the country and, and made rafts out of tires and whatever they could in order to go across a sea, in order to hopefully survive that, in order to land on another land where they would be at someone else's mercy just because they knew if they stayed behind they would be brutally tortured and killed. Millions of people. Children are starving and dying by the thousands. Countless more have been orphaned. And they find themselves on foreign soil begging people for assistance. And too many people, too many Christians have walked to the other side of the road and we are pretending like we don't see it. And Jesus stands across the ages and says, love your neighbor as yourself. And too many Christians are ignoring them. After all, we're busy. After all, these are not really our people. They're not our responsibility. Uh, after all, it's complicated. There is a lot of risk involved. They're coming from a part of the world where there's a lot of radical Islamic terrorism, and it would be easy perhaps for terrorists to infiltrate their ranks and come into other countries and do more damage. And so like the priest and the Levi, we go to the other side of the street because it bothers us and it makes us uncomfortable and we don't want to have anything to do with it, and we go to the other side. Now let me be absolutely clear. I don't claim to know what is the best policy for the United States government with regard to immigration and security issues. It is incredibly complex. And if you think you understand it and it's simple and the politicians are just messing it up, you're just arrogant. It's very complex. It is a very difficult problem. 
And it's a problem that is faced by our president, our Congress, not to mention the national leaders of many other countries in the world. It is a major issue, and I am not here to say the president should do this or he should do that. That is not my point. My point is that if you're a Christian, you're a Christian before you're an American. And that as Christians, we can't look the other way. It's an incredibly complex issue. I'm praying for our president and our national and international leaders around the world as they deal with trying to figure out how to find the the right balance between keeping their people safe and showing compassion to people who are hurting. And we can argue all day about what our national policy ought to be with regard to refugees and immigration and building walls and all that stuff. But we cannot claim to take the Bible seriously and still argue that as Christians, we should do nothing. I read this week that fewer American Christians are even praying for the Syrian refugees than were praying for them a year ago. That's why I was really thrilled um, this past week, I think it was a Wednesday, the Washington Post, a full-page ad came out. It's an open letter to our national leaders signed by 500 prominent evangelical Christian leaders, names that you recognize, people that you respect, people like Max Lucado, people like Tim Keller, people like Bill Hybels. They all signed this thing, and they, they basically asked our national leaders to address this issue with the utmost compassion for the refugees. And they quoted scripture and said that we have to care for the hurting and downtrodden people in the world. So whatever policy they come up with, please, please take into account that we have to care and show compassion and mercy to refugees. Now, I guess I'm not prominent enough to make the top 500 and be asked to sign that thing. But I'm telling you, if I had been asked, my name would be bigger than John Hancock's on the Declaration of Independence, because I believe that as Christians, we have a responsibility. We cannot look the other way. Now, I'm just talking about one national calamity, one international refugee crisis. But as you all know, we could talk about all sorts of nations where there is starvation, where there is famine, where there is terrorism, where there is political unrest, where people are being persecuted and put to death, where children are being kidnapped and taken off. We know that all of this stuff is happening. The question is, can we be Christians and pay no attention? Folks, this is not a political question. It's a question of Christian love. The church should be leading the way in ministries of compassion, not just in Syria, but with issues at home and abroad in other nations as well, where people are suffering and no one seems to care. There are homeless people in our own communities, and we see them all the time, and they are hurting, and they're lost, and they're a mess, and they're in the rain, and they need help. And what do we do? Most of us don't do much. And frankly, there's a good reason. We understand that if you give money to an addict, it's probably going to something you don't want to support, right? We understand that it's a complex issue. It is not easy to go, oh, here's how you help homeless people in Southern California. It is not easy. But here's the point. There's all kinds of things we could debate about the best way to help homeless people in Southern California. But if we're Christians, what we can't do is not care. We simply don't have that right. 
We've been bought with a price. We are not our own. There are children within a stone's throw where we live in our, in our cities who do not have the privilege of going to school in a safe community, who, who, many of whom don't live in homes where they have a supportive family. And the schools that they go to are paid for by tax dollars and all of that, and theoretically they have the same opportunities that everybody else has. But I'm just here to tell you that when you live in the ghetto and it's drugs and it's gangs and it's homes with no fathers, that those children do not have the same opportunities as children in nice suburban neighborhoods have to get a good education. And I don't know the answer. I don't know if it has to do with a different school approach, whether we should be doing vouchers or charter schools or public schools. or I don't know what the answer is, but here's what I do know. It is not okay for those of us who sit in comfortable suburban homes where our kids are getting great educations to not care. It's not okay. Every black American I know has felt the impact of racism for their whole lives. It's part, of the, it's part of the narrative. And for those who have never experienced it, it's really hard to understand. It's hard to understand why there are attitudes and, and, and how many times have there's been conversations about, you know, we see something and people are marching with signs that say black lives matter and somebody else comes back and says, no, no, all lives matter. And so many black people shake their heads and go, you don't understand what we're saying. You don't understand what it's like to drive in a neighborhood and fear being pulled over by the police. And you can look at statistics and you can argue all of that kind of stuff, but every person I know who deals with it says, you don't understand. I live in this. And I don't know what the answers are. The answers are not to riot. The answers are not to build greater racial divides. I don't know what the answers are, but here's what I can tell you. As Christians, it is not okay for us to not care. To, to make these things a political issue, rather than remembering that these are people. There are people all around us caught up in life-dominating sin and addiction, and as a result of it, they are going after anything they can go after to try to find fulfillment, whether it's drugs or alcohol or sensuality or, or bad relationships or whatever the deal is and they're going after it and then when that fails they try something else and when that fails they try something else and their lives spin out of control and we stand back and we look at them and so easily we go what a mess I don't want anything to do with a person like that I don't know what the answers are I don't I'm not trying to oversimplify it I'm not trying to say we can fix this overnight here's what I'm trying to say if you are a Christian it is not okay for you to not care. And caring leads to action. We saw in the video families with severely handicapped children. And you saw what the lady said. She, through tears, said, it's really hard on a marriage. You don't have any time for each other. It's hard on the other kids. It's hard on the finances. It's hard on everything. And one week out of the year, they get to go to camp and they get to go out on a date as a couple and they get to remember what it's like to just be people again. I'm not saying we all have to go volunteer for Johnny and Friends family camp, but here's what I am saying. You don't have the right to not care. We can't do everything. 
but we can all do something. What can we do for the Syrian refugees? Well, for starters, we can pray. I almost began to cry when I read the statistic that said there are fewer American Christians praying for them today than there were a year ago. Like somehow we're mad at them because they're refugees and we've decided they're in the other camp. We should hate them. We can begin to pray. We can at least do that. We can can support organizations like World Vision and other organizations that are doing something to help. We can stop seeing this as just a political issue and we can stop crossing the street and pretending not to notice it. We can do that. According to Jesus, these people are our neighbors. And we're called to love our neighbors in practical ways. Perhaps if the body of Christ would lead the way in ministries of compassion, maybe we could shake that label we keep hearing so much about, about being hard-hearted, narrow-minded bigots and, and hypocrites. And maybe, just maybe, some people would look at us and they see Jesus. Not because we compromise the truth, but because we poured out buckets of grace. By the way, you remember the guy, the World War II veteran with all the prejudice? In the last few years of his life, God did an amazing work in his heart. Began to set him free from the bitterness and the hatred and the fear and the prejudice that was there as a result of it. And in his early 90s, he, I watched his life transform as his heart softened and the Lord became so prominent in his life that there was no greater joy in his life than every Sunday when he pulled up to church and saw hundreds of Asian people on the church campus taking up parking spaces and places and room and all that because their hearts were being transformed as they were coming to know Jesus and their lives were being made better. And he told me, really, weeks before he died, he said one of the greatest joys of his life has been seeing all of those Asian folks come to know Jesus. God transforms hearts, my friends. And when he transforms hearts, he transforms families. And when he transforms families, he transforms communities. And when he transforms communities, he transforms the world. It happens one person at a time. And we get to touch these lives. Jesus can transform any heart. So let me ask you a question Who's your neighbor? And what are you doing about it? Let's stand. We'll pray together.